0: Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode is on Managing ART with Opportunistic Infections, featuring Christina Mussini, Head of the Department of Infectious Diseases and Tropical Medicine and Full Professor of Infectious Diseases at Infectious Diseases Clinics at University Hospital, University of Medina and Reggio Emilia in Reggio Emilia, Italy, and William Short, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases, Department of Medicine at the Pearlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They'll discuss key considerations for the use of ART in the setting of opportunistic infections and following their dialogue, They'll field questions from healthcare professionals. This episode is taken from our series on key decisions in HIV care. You can follow along with the slides, which are available in the show notes. Let's get started and listen in to Drs. Musini and Short.
1: Great. Thank you so much. So thank you everyone for taking time out of your day to join us. Um, I know people are joining us from across the globe. so. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is where you're at. Again, thank you for allowing us to present this really important data and information. And so I, I just want to start before I delve into the slides. You know, many of you are not used to seeing webinars on ART and opportunistic infections. And the question is, why is this even an important topic? You know, where it's 2022, you're talking about 40 years after this. You know, you know, virus was first introduced into the world. So why are we talking about that many, many years? You know, I think it's important to remember for many individuals who have access to care, there really is a, a dramatic change that has been brought about through antiretrovirals and everything else that has come forward with testing and all the treatment advances. However, there's a subset of patients who still are unaware of their HIV status or if they are aware for many, many, many reasons, one of the largest being stigma, they have chosen not to come into care and are off ART and really are unable to reap the benefits that we see. And so we do have patients present with this. And I think it's important because these conversations come up, and as you see, as we both go through our presentations, that managing these cases are very complex. And they require certain intricacies in terms of timing of ART, when you can and cannot use steroids. And, and really what you wanna do is make sure you do no harm. And I have to say, before we even delve into this, if you're unsure, it's not a problem if you go back and look this up. Bob. I always do. Every time I have someone with an OI, I make sure I have the most up-to-date information because I wanna make sure I do no harm because data are still emerging. It's just that we lately have all been focused on you know management of ART without OI. So let's delve into our first case. So this is a 35-year-old female, presents with a two- to three-week gradual onset of shortness of breath associated with weight loss and dysphagia. Sounds very classic, right? Very classic for PCP. On exam, you notice this person is bitemporal wasting, person's febrile, tachypneic, and has oral candidiasis. So right off the bat, before you even see, you know this person's very sick. So this has been going on for a couple weeks. They have a fever. They're starting out tachypneic, haven't even started treatment. You do a chest X-ray, there's bilateral multifocal infiltrates. You do an HIV screen because this person's not been diagnosed and has actually never had an HIV screen. You get a reactive screen and you have a confirmation of an HIV-1 antibody afterwards. You send off labs, CD4 viral load genotype. I'm going to go through the labs in a second, but really all that has come back and your genus type is still pending. You start the patient on trimethoprim sulfa, five minutes per KIG q 8 because the patient has no history of documented allergy to either component. And because the patient is breathing very fast and has a low oxygen saturation, you again add storage, which is really part of the standard protocol. Unlike what you would see here, you would think this would be a straightforward case. This person actually clinically deteriorates and gets intubated. And you do a confirmatory test to find out this person does have pneumocystis. Just some key highlights here. I'm not going to go through everything, but you see this person has a CD4 count of 20. So this is a nader of CD4 of 20 and a virus load of 125,000, a low BMI. And then the GFR is greater than 60. And remember, that's important because you're using um, trimethoprim sulfur, which we know can cause problems with uh, nephrotoxicity as well as hyperkalemia. So you want to make sure you're on top of that. So question comes up is, While you're managing the opportunistic infection, you're given the steroids, you're doing the ventilator management, you're managing everything there. And you have someone come and say to you, when would you start antiretrovirals in this patient? And for a long time when I trained, it was taboo to even consider starting antiretrovirals in this setting. You always waited until they came to the office. And then this landmark study came out, it was an ACTG study 5164 led by Andy Zalopa, they really asked that question. Do you start ART immediately or do you defer it in patients with active opportunistic infections? Before I even get into what happened, I think it's really important for you to put in your head because when we go to Dr. Massini's talk, she's going to really lay out some differences. So I don't want you to walk away thinking this answers every question. There really are ought to be differences when you start talking about cryptococcal meningitis or tuberculosis. So in this trial, it was clear Patients with TB were ineligible. So that was an exclusion criteria. So what were the most common OIs? The pneumocystis was the most seen in 63% of the cases, crypto in 12, and bacterial infections. I actually went back yesterday because a question came up. There was some toxo in there as well. So there were smaller percentages, but really it was largely on pneumocystis. And what happened is you saw that within 48 hours of randomization, The patients were to start ART within 14 days of an acute OI treatment. So that was the immediate arm versus waiting to you completed the OI treatment. And that was called the deferred arm. And that was somewhere between week four and week 32. And what you see clearly is that their rate of age progression or death, which was their primary endpoint, was 14.2% in the immediate versus 24% in the deferred arm you just see that clearly here between the two curves. So in the dark blue is the immediate ART versus the deferred. Interesting enough, when we looked, these patients had low CD4 counts to start. So your concern, theoretical concern at the time was, if I give someone antiretrovirals. One, you have a low CD4 count, maybe a high viral load, but you also have an active infection. Was that going to make the case for paradoxical immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome And what you saw from the study, which was key, is that there was no difference in iris between either arm, so six in the immediate and nine in the deferred. So really this is the standard when we talk about how to manage uh, PCP. This is just going over when to start, and this is a really nice um, guideline from EX, the DHHS, and the IAS USA, and this is in general. And we really have in the field moved to starting antiretrovirals as soon as possible, Largely for two reasons. One is for decreased transmission. We know that treating someone with HIV to lower the viral load really decreases the chance of transmission to the partner without HIV. But also, the START trial showed that as a result of delaying, there was an increase in AIDS defining and non AIDS defining illnesses. And really, that set the stage for really a change globally for when we actually start antiretrovirals. It really is at diagnosis. We no longer have CD4 thresholds. However, when you look at patients with OIs, you can see straight down, most of them say within two weeks. And again, Dr. Mussini is going to cover, and I think it's important that we cover this, areas where it's a little different than within two weeks of starting your opportunistic infection. So what do you do and what ART regimens say? You do not think this person is going to be able to get extubated within that two-week timeframe. So what ART regimens do you consider for this patient when PCP was intubated and unable to swallow? Here's some data, and, and I, I want to draw your attention to the bottom. Both have great resources. I use the one on the right, the PDF format, the most because I can print it out and it's updated every year. And it really goes through which tablets can be crushed, which tablets, are there liquids available? and what tablets cannot be crushed. And I think this is important because things change so much. This table here is a condensation of of all those guidelines. And I think if I was going to put this patient on a regimen, let's just say I would go with, what if they weren't intubated? I would either go with a single tablet with an integrase inhibitor and probably TAF, and if not, maybe two single drugs. So you go looking here to see what data do we have, and what you can see is when you go down tablets can be crushed, you go down to integration. you can see diategor can, relategor can. The one thing that's listed here as can be crushed, and I just will advise some caution, it says things with TAF. And if you look up here, TAF. And when you actually look through this document, per the package insert, TAF cannot be crushed, but there are case reports of people having crushed. So, again, I leave you to draw your own conclusions. I tend not to do that. And then I wind up using a TDF based regimen, which I can crush and then later switch to TAF when they're extubated. For some people, you may say, well, this person's on very, they're very sick. They're on high dose trimethoprim sulfa, you know, 15 to 20 megs per kg, which is a lot. And then you have TDF, which may be nephrotoxic. So maybe I'll hold. So I think this does get complicated. But if you go down, you know, something like diatagavir is very easily crushable. All right. So let's switch gears now. We're going to talk about Kaposi sarcoma, something you don't hear about a lot in lectures, but I think it's worth bringing up. So here you have patient case two and you have a 28 year old male diagnosed with HIV two years ago, but again, lost to care and now comes to reestablish. When you examine him, you see a couple of things. He has a couple of raised nodular purple lesions on his hard palate and two to three raised purple lesions on his chest. I stop here like I did yesterday and I, I won't prolong it, but I just encourage you, I know you do it, but if you don't, please do it. Please examine inside someone's mouth. There really is a host of pathology that you can find. It's not just thrush. You can find oral lesions. You can find gingivitis. You can find decaying teeth. I mean, there's all the leukoplakia. There's a lot of things you can really gauge from someone by looking in the mouth. I'm not a dentist, but I, I, I look at everyone's mouth, even if they're coming in for a short visit. So sometimes, and you'll see later, that sometimes the oral may be the only place where you see these lesions. Patient was sent to dermatology for a biopsy, and what you see back on histology, it has things suggestive of composite sarcoma, and then the HHV8 is positive of molecular staining. You do do um, evaluation, and there's no evidence of visceral composite sarcoma. This person's numbers, the CD4 counts 100, the viral load's high. You can see all the rest of the parameters. So let's talk a little bit about KS. So this is human herpes virus eight, and that's associated with all types of Kaposi sarcoma. So remember, there's a couple of differences: there's the classic, there's endemic, HIV-related, and transplant-related. But if you look at all of them, HHV eight has been associated with this, and that's really what you saw from your molecular results. Occurs most frequently among patients with HIV that have advanced immunosuppression with a CD four less than two hundred. I will say, and someone brought it up yesterday, and and I think it's important, that we have started to see cases in patients who are virally suppressed. So CD4 counts above 500, they're virally suppressed, and they actually have evidence of KS. That has occurred as well. Most patients present with hyperpigmented, non-tender macular or nodular skin lesions. One-third have oral lesions. And again, that really is important, and it tells you that you should really be looking inside someone's mouth. Patients can have visceral involvement that may be symptomatic there for the pulmonary, their GI tract. So when I see someone who I see a cutaneous lesion, I always get a chest x-ray. I look for pulmonary symptoms. I make sure there's no blood in their stool and make sure they have evaluation there. So it's really important to sort of rule that out. And again, I told you about diagnosis. Diagnosis really is cytology and immunologic cell markers, histology as well, but not exam. So just looking at a lesion is not sufficient to say that's Kaposi sarcoma. You do need a biopsy. And one of the differentials that comes up is, is this bacillary angiomatosis. When you look at treatment, there's sort of a standard treatment, and that's usually for someone who has visceral involvement. So the standard of care of someone just has cutaneous is given ART and controlling their virus to the point of viral suppression. If they have visceral You want to give ART, but usually that's combined with chemotherapy. And there's usually two forms of chemotherapy that are given. So it's liposomal doxorubicin and paclitaxel. Doxorubicin has less toxicity and preferred first-line treatment. So that's usually started with. And again, both show very similar responses. So it's just that if you have two drugs with two responses, which one do you go with? You go with the one that has less toxicity. How about ART regimens? So you have someone who has visceral KS and you want to then start them on ART treatment, do you have any concerns? And the answer is potentially. So if you're going with doxorubicin, you can see down here in green, most regimens, and this is pretty up-to-date, so bigtegivir, diutegivir, raw which is really what a lot of the guidelines recommend, you have no interaction expected. When you get down into atazanavir, you definitely have some clinically significant interaction you may want to avoid. It's same thing here at ropivirine. Teclatexel is a little different in that you do have some issues here, and largely due to cytochrome induction. So you have some cytochrome induction, and basically can lead to lower levels of your HIV drugs. So you want to be cautious there when you're starting. going to finish up with some other special considerations. So in addition to looking at which drugs am I worried about, what are there going to be in drug-drug interactions... We know that you have, we definitely, as part of your treatment plan for someone key at KS, you absolutely should be on ART. So avoiding those drug-drug interactions is key. Lack of evidence suggesting that one regimen is superior over another or better. You know, in the old days, I think there was, when I trained, that there was a theory that protease inhibitor-based regimens were better. And I, I don't think that held up to. There's really not enough evidence to support that. It's just really controlling that virus You always want to be concerned about iris when you start someone ART, and there's two types. So someone who has no known history of KS, you start them on ART, and then they get new lesions. We call that unmasking. Then the other one is paradoxical. You have someone who had KS. Obviously, I told you ART is part of the standard of care. You start them on ART, and all of a sudden, these things get worse. So how do you treat KS-IRIS? Well, at this point, you maybe need to consider systemic chemotherapy with supportive measures. And I'm going to draw your attention here because this is the one time you'll hear us talk back and forth about IRIS. So I just talked about PCP, standard of care as they go on steroids, more so part of the protocol with trimethyl sulfa. But here, if you have someone with KS-IRIS, steroids are strongly discouraged because they've been associated with really aggravation of pre-existing chias, So you really want to avoid steroids in that condition. So with that, I'm going to turn to Dr. Mussini who will take you through two other opportunistic infections and I'll come back at the end with questions. Thanks.
2: Thank you very much, Bill. So our first case is a 52-year-old male admitted for shortness of breath. So you have uh, already heard about a story like this. HIV testing was positive, and bronchoalveolar lavage la- fluid resulted in diagnosis of PCP. But as it happened very often, and we are seeing so many late presenters in this COVID uh, era, a patient present with more than one opportunistic infection at the same time. So while he was receiving treatment for PCP, he reported seeing black spots uh, in the right eye. So he was uh, seen by a uh, an ophthalmologist, uh, and he was diagnosed with retinitis. I mean, fundoscopy is really part uh, of the baseline uh, evaluation of a, a late presenter patient. Even if the patient is not uh, complaining about any sim- any visual symptom, any vis- visual alteration. So, but in this case, he was complaining, but even if it's not, you should ask for an, uh, a fundoscopy. And as it happened for a localized CMV infection, CMV DNA in blood was negative. Is it not surprising that uh, uh, this patient had a very low CD4 count because the two opportunistic infection that I will talk about uh, are characteristic of the latest stage of HIV infection. And so his CD4 count was 20 cells. His viral load was above 150,000. And his BMI was 23, that was, you know, a low BMI is characteristic of the the wasting syndrome, so the latest uh, stage of the disease, uh, and as is uh, the uh, low cholesterol. These are two pictures of uh, the retinitis, uh, and we know that uh, uh, this uh, uh, is uh, a retinitis that is peripheral, is not uh, at the fovea. While here is uh, an iris, uh, is uh, a paradoxical retinitis due to immune response. It is not the only way that iris is presented. At first, we have to to see that uh, iris is uh, not predictable, but it's more frequent uh, in uh, uh, those who start antiretroviral or started antiretroviral with a very low CD4 count. As you can see from this study that was published uh, out of 13,000 cases of iris, uh, I mean, uh, 13,000 cases uh, of late presenter, and the iris was uh, developing uh, uh, almost 1,700 patients. And uh, you see that with the decline of the CD4 count, there was an increase uh, in iris, and this was typical of all opportunistic infection not only of a specific opportunistic infection. So there are some special considerations that we have to take into account when we should start antiretroviral in patients with CMV, because we have to know that apart from uh, iris uh, uh, as a a paradoxical uh, retinitis, we have also uveitis that is, uh, again, uh, very visual threatening for the patient. We know that... uh, the iris can occur not only in patients with an active retinitis, but also in patients who had recently a retinitis or even had a severe retinitis. So it's something that we have to keep in mind that when we have an a immune uh, reconstitution syndrome, we have to look at the eye. Okay. So the likelihood of, of severity or severity of immune reconstitution, uh, reconstitution uve, uveitis may be decreased by delaying ART, anti-retinitis control. This is something that we have to keep in mind. Exactly as what uh, Bill was saying, the graph of the study by Zolopa of the CTG 5164, it really applies to most uh, opportunistic infections, not to all of them. And CMV is one of the excluded ones. If delaying ART, consider possibly also the possibility that uh, we put the patient at risk of developing other opportunistic infection. So it's always a a decision that should balance the risk of new opportunistic infection and the risk of losing the eye. Because CMV uh, replication typically declines within one, two weeks of anti-CMV therapy, most experts, most guidelines will suggest to start uh, antiretroviral no later than one, two weeks after initiation of uh, anti-CMV treatment. And this is true not only for retinitis, but also for colitis, esophagitis, or other end uh, organ disease caused by CMV. We will see uh, with the next opportunistic infection, but it's important to underline that IRIS uh, is a concern with many, with any neurologic disease, not only CMV encephalitis, that is a ventriculitis or radiculitis, but also with other opportunistic infections that involve the CNS. So it's important to defer antiretrovirals in these patients. This is the treatment for CMV retinitis. You know that there is an initial treatment, uh, followed by a chronic maintenance therapy. We should differentiate between the peripheral involvement, involvement where the risk of losing the, the vision is very low so we could uh, decide to treat either with an, an IV a treatment with gancyclovir or with uh, a, an oral treatment with valgacyclovir or and if it's uh, at risk division uh, you should also perform an intravitreal injection of gancyclovir or foscarnet or you can if it's uh, central the, the retinitis it's very important uh, to uh, use only uh, the intravenous treatment and uh, the most important thing is that uh, if we have uh, an immune reconstitution uveitis, uh, we should uh, um, use uh, steroids either local and in some cases also systemic one. When we stop chronic maintenance therapy for severe retinitis, uh, we usually treat it for three, six months uh, And, uh, if the lesions are inactive and the viral load is undetectable and the CD4 count is above 100, we should consider to stop uh, the uh, chronic maintenance. Uh, Which art should we use in this patient, prescribing this patient? Almost all, I have to say. We have to pay attention to tenofovir diproxyl fumarate. uh, but for the rest, uh, it's uh, all green uh, or just a little caution for tough. We have to pay attention to the drugs that have, uh, you know, when, when we prescribe antiretrovirus and drugs for opportunistic infection, we have to consider not to overlap uh, side effects. Uh, so we know that the risk of uh, ganciclovir is uh, the risk of uh, bone marrow toxicity. So we have to pay attention. And this patient has also PCP. So probably we should uh, go to Foscarnet, and Foscarnet, uh, the risk is of renal impairment, uh, so we should not uh, use uh, tenofovir diproxyl fumarate, and we should use with caution uh, also DAF. Cryptococcal meningitis is the second uh, opportunistic infection, and also in this case, uh, we will go outside uh, the general consideration about the two weeks. This is a migrant from Mali admitted to hospital for an and weight loss. He reported severe headache. Severe headache is re- really the central symptoms for uh, cryptococcal meningitis. It's completely independent from fever. In many cases, uh, the patient do not have fever. It's important to see that the CT scan of the brain is negative. The CSF that should be performed show for sure an increase uh, uh, pressure of the uh, CSF, but also an increase in protein and four lymphocytes per cubic millimeter. I have to say that this number, you should keep this number in mind because we will see that it will be important in deciding when to start antiretrovirants in patient with the cryptomeningitis. As for uh, CMV, usually cryptococcal meningitis is characteristics uh, is characteristic of a patient with an advanced HIV stage. And also, the viral load is very high, and while the BMI is lower than the other patient. When we talk to when to start, we should consider. Uh, that the the trials that have been conducted uh, on patients with cryptococcal meningitis have been conducted in the countries that are endemic for this opportunistic infection, so mostly in Africa and in Asia. In this case, we are in Africa, and uh, uh, we see that uh, the graph, uh, the two lines in the graph are inverted, so it's much better the survival in the delayed Arm uh, than uh, in the early treatment. Uh, why this? Uh, because uh, the risk uh, when the CNS is involved is of iris. But is there any specific risk uh, for iris? Uh, is something that we have to, you know, take into account when we see some uh, peculiar exam uh, or uh, symptoms or sign. So it has been conducted a trial on cryptococcal meningitis again uh, in uh, in uh, developing countries, and uh, they look at, at uh, you know they confirm the the same graph uh, as the the previous uh, trial where the defer art as, as a better survival than early art, but when they split their population between those who had uh, a lymphocyte count uh, in the CSF uh, greater than five per cubic milliliter, you see that there was no difference in uh, between the two arms. While the difference was very pronounced when, uh, and very large, when uh, uh, the patient was anergic, uh, he had less than five cells per cubic milliliter at randomization in the CSF. So, In this patient, for sure, we have to wait uh, for four or six weeks. While in these patients, we should look uh, if uh, uh, really the risk of developing another opportunistic infection is higher than the risk of having an iris uh, of uh, CMV. not surprisingly, all the guidelines, either the European guidelines or the DHHS, uh, or, DHHS or the WHO guidelines, they say that we have to wait uh, more than four weeks. Uh, so, in the EX guidelines, uh, the, the panel said, uh, most of the panel said more than four weeks. And there were some uh, component of the, some member of the panel that said wait uh, until six ten weeks, uh, because it, it's really, dangerous. So, because the problem is that, uh, uh, as it was for KS or for all the opportunistic infection, we uh, could have a risk uh, of uh, paradoxical iris, uh, so a worsening of symptoms that were present before uh, ART was started, or a masking iris, uh, that is a new onset of symptoms. I mean, the opportunistic infection was present, but uh, it was not diagnosed. Uh, and, uh, And this is very important to see. The treatment uh, of iris is usually corticosteroids. For TB, we have uh, uh, these dosages uh, of prednisone, uh, 1.5 milligram per kilogram per day for two weeks, uh, and followed by half the doses per kilogram per day for other two weeks. In uh, TB, we could we could use also uh, in order to decrease the risk of virus, we could also have uh, a prophylactic regimen. It was recently published a trial on the New England where you could use uh, forty milligram of, of uh, uh, prednisone for the first two weeks, followed by twenty milligram in the other two weeks. So you see that uh, for TB meningitis, prednisone uh, there are. Uh, oral prednisone for two weeks, then taper, PML, methylprednisolone or dexamethasone IV for three, five days, then uh, oral taper. Okay. So when we manage it, which is the treatment, uh, we have the induction treatment. that is two weeks of duration and uh, the preferred regimen is liposomal amphotericin B plus or uh, deoxicolate, but we usually use uh, uh, liposoma plus flucytosine. And, uh, and then for more than eight weeks in duration is the maintenance therapy and the preferred regimen is, uh, fluconazole. You should consider if the CSF culture is negative and, uh, you should continue the consolidation therapy for eight weeks uh, from the first negative CSF culture. As I said, the maintenance therapy is fluconazole 200 milligram uh, once a day orally. For more than one year, but we could stop it. uh, Actually, I published this paper so many (laughs) years ago. We uh, should stop it uh, uh, more than one year from start art patient who stays asymptomatic for cryptococcal infection and when the CD4 count is above 100 cells. What treatment we can consider? We have to pay attention to fluconazole because azole has a lot of uh, DDIs and also to uh, flucytosine and amphotericin B, especially for uh, the side effects on kidneys. So I I live to be at the takeoff messages.
1: Great. Thank you so much. All right. So hopefully through our discussion of these four OIs, Really, the take-home points are that really initiating ART as soon as possible with most opportunistic infection, that's usually within two weeks. But again, the exception is those infections where you have CNS involvement and the risk of iris are maybe the exception. So there you want to consider delaying about four to six weeks after initiation of fungal treatment for cryptococcus. Always consider drug drug interactions when you're starting antiretrovirals for the OI, you know, for maybe some of the Things like PCP and crypto, they're, they're short term, but then there's also longer terms in maintenance. So you really want to make sure you have a role in making sure they, they, they don't cause any harm. And then finally, for critically ill patients required intubation, just remember there are other things available and always consult any reference you have. But again, I think we listed a really nice one there that's updated annually that tells you, you know, what are the things you can crush? Are there alternate formulations that you can push down a tube? And, and I will say in there, always remember giving drugs. You want to make sure what's it. So, you know, not everything goes with two feedings. Remember, there's some drugs that you need food with, some on an empty stomach. Remember PPIs. Remember H2 blockers. So while the crushing and getting it in is important, also remember all the other factors. So it does become complicated. And I think, you know, really having a team approach involving Pharmacists in this discussion is really critical to make sure because you don't want to give someone something that you are going to get inadequate levels. So I think with that, we are going to move to question and answer. So question. Yeah. again, thank you. So
2: we have a, a question from Alan. that says, I have a question for CMV. If a HIV patient has CMV viremia without end organ damage with low CD4, do we need to put him on prophylaxis? Thank you. Uh, it depends on CMV viremia. And uh, on the symptoms, because if the patient has fever, even if it it does not have an, an on end organ uh, um, disease, uh, I treat them, not with prophylaxis, I really treat them. I don't know, Bill, what you think?
1: Yeah, no, I think you said it right. I mean, you're looking for something else. I find, and I just got called yesterday about this, it was a patient who came in, He had many other things. He had lymphoma, new diagnosis of HIV, syphilis, and they sent off a bunch of tests. And then about two weeks later, you know, he's coming in for chemo and they call and they're like, oh, he has low-level CMV a 100 copies. And it's like, do we need to treat? And it's like, I think you found your reason. Clinically, he's on ART, he's better, no more fevers, no end organ damage. So I think in that case, no, but I think Christina hit it right. You know, you're looking for symptoms. You want to figure out what they have. And again, if you just have fever, then you're concerned and you want to treat that. So, no, I agree. Not just for it to be a reason, just like you said. Yeah, if
2: it's a low level and the patient is completely asymptomatic, you can, you know, wait and see. You start antiretrovirals and see what's happened. Maybe with the increase in CD4 count, you will control the CMV varina. Something that it's important to underline is that when we say treat uh, immediately, you know, I think that late presenters are not the patient that should receive treatment immediately. Because, uh, you know, I think that at first when you treat someone with uh, a drug for an opportunistic infection, you have to understand how the patient tolerates this drug. In order to understand If it develops uh, side effects, uh, if it is uh, for the drug for opportunistic infection or if it is for antiretrovirals, for example. I really like the uh, presentation of Bill on the uh, piece that could be crushed because these patients are all very, very complicated. Very complicated. And the idea, for example, in my case to treat uh, at the same time with uh, cotrimoxazole. And with ganциклovir, it's something that it will end up with a bone marrow suppression for sure. So you should uh, change either to a second line uh, in uh, in PCP or to foscarnet uh, in uh, in CMV. I really like that uh, young doctors uh, attend these webinars, uh, and I know that you could see also we we didn't talk about iris in TB because there has been already. A webinar in CC. Also, you can look for it because it's not easy to, you know, when we talk about antiretrovirals. Antiretroviral is not easy at all, especially in uh, in those who are uh, resistant.
1: But uh, treating OIs uh, is even more complicated. Oh, and I want to piggyback on what you said. I think it's really important. So why? Why did someone get into this? You know, why are they presenting with an OI? <clears throat> so it either they were not engaged in care or they they came in care and something drove them away. And then, like Christina said, you're going to give them multiple pills. They're going to be very sick and then they're gonna leave care again. And so I think you have to be very careful and work with patients here because it's it's really important. You don't want to do harm. And again, I think it's just really, really important. Work with the patient, develop a rapport talk through this because the other thing I found is when someone presents with a CD4 count of 400, 500, and I start them on ART, they come back and they say, maybe a little nausea. I really felt great. But when I have that patient who has a CD4 count of 50, they're very sick when I start them on ART. It's, it's really you know unbelievable. They don't really know what to do. They're like, I really feel sick. And, and then I always say they get into the cycle where it spirals down because then they develop OIs and you're adding more pills to someone who's already <laughs> sick. So it gets complicated. I think there's another question.
0: That yeah, came.
2: that was asked yesterday. And so we can discuss it now. If newly diagnosed HIV patients present uh, presented with diarrhea and cryptococcal meningitis, when should steroid avoid it? Uh, that is a very, very good question because uh, steroids are usually contraindicated in cryptococcal meningitis. But in iris, um, I think that the th- first thing that you should do is to discontinue antiretroviral therapy because it's something that uh, you should not maintain this uh, and then uh, try with low dose of steroids. But it's, uh, you know, while in KS, uh, you have the, you know, the weapon of the chemotherapy, in cryptomeningitis, while the patient is on tri- antifungal treatment and you discontinue uh, antiretroviral, it, the only possibility that you have is to try to use uh, steroids. I would not go for a high dosage, but I would try and see what's happened. But it would be a disaster. That's why it's important to wait because IRIS in the CNS uh, it's a huge problem It's the same for PML. We didn't talk about PML, but iris in PML is devastating. And the patient could die. I had a patient who died on Fosfemcevil because he had a, a PML that was severe. And after he could re- reconstitute his uh, CD4 count after like uh, five years that he had five CD4, he died of, uh, of PML. So it, it was. You have to pay attention on iris, and that's why we are doing these webinars. And I think that it's very important not to talk only about, uh, uh, you know, the single pill or three versus two, but to talk about uh, a really opportunistic infection.
1: The complexities, right? I've been doing this over 20 years, and, and like I say, every time one comes in, I make sure I'm up to date. The other thing, and Christina, you said it, A lot of times I find I'm not challenging, but for example, someone came and saw a patient that I saw and said, oh, the person has CMV retinitis. I said, so tell me what you saw. But I want to know what you saw. And they said, oh, cotton wool spots. And I said, well, that's not CMV retinitis. And it was a young ophthalmologist who had not trained. And I remember the fellow looking at me and she's like, why are you challenging him? I said, because cotton wool spots is not cmv cmv is very classic there's hemorrhage there's exudate it's very different and i said and he said well it's hiv yeah right it's just hiv and and so long story short we, we debated back and forth and i demanded the attending come and look and the attending saw and said no this is not cmv and it's like okay that's true you don't want to add cyclovir, like you just said, that you're committing this person to another medication that's toxic, bone marrow suppressing. So you have to know, that's why you need someone with a little bit of a gray background <laughs> to sort of- Yeah. <laughs> you don't normally deal with these every day anymore and and they're challenging. They look to you as the expert and when you've only seen one case, so that's why hearing these webinars and and always keeping fresh on this is really, really critical.
0: Thank you to Drs. Mussini and Short, and thanks to you, the listener. To listen to more episodes in this series and to see slides and webcasts on key decisions in HIV care, see the links in the show notes. Thank you and have a great day.